Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to Germany Elects, a special World Review podcast series on the German election from the New Statesman. I'm Jeremy Cliff, the international editor of the New Statesman, and in this second episode of Germany Elects, I'll be looking at foreign policy. What do German voters think of their country's role in the world? We can perhaps see a development in the Berlin foreign policy elites and sort of the Berlin foreign policy bubble about Germany. It's need to take on a stronger role, but we don't really see this reflected in German public opinion. And what big international challenges will face the country's next government? But I do think that Germany has a very unique role to play. These close ties with the United States reaffirmed by this Merkel visit, but then also realizing fully inter internalizing the strengths that Germany has for China. That's Catherine Kluver-Ashbrook. She'll be joining me later in the episode. The election campaign has really got going now. Candidates are holding their first events. Here in Berlin, posters have gone up on seemingly every lamppost, and there's been some movement in the polls. Our New Statesman tracker shows that since the last episode of Germany elects, the Christian Democratic CDU and its CSU partners have dropped some three points to 25%, while the Social Democratic SPD has drawn almost level with the Greens in the contest for second place. At least some credit for that goes to Olaf Scholz the party's dry but seemingly well-liked candidate to succeed Angela Merkel as chancellor. Here's Scholz in Bochum, in Western Germany, at a rally to launch his campaign on August the 14th. How can we succeed in making sure the 2020s is a good era? And it's possible. That's the message that should go out from here today. We can shape the future. We don't need to fear it. And we Social Democrats have a good plan for it. That poll tracker, along with all of our coverage, is available at newstatesman.com Germany. And our polling guru, Ben Walker, will be back next time to look at the numbers in more detail. But now, let's turn to our focus for this episode, foreign policy. As we record this, the Taliban has just taken the Afghan capital, Kabul. 
and chaos has broken out at the city's airport as desperate Afghans try to get onto flights out of the country. Western governments, including Germany's, are scrambling to get their nationals out of Kabul. The Western withdrawal from Afghanistan, including the last German troops from what had been the Federal Republic's biggest ever foreign military deployment, and the subsequent Taliban takeover have become a big campaign theme in recent days. On August 16th, CDU Chancellor candidate Armin Laschet warned of a new migration crisis. The European Union must prepare for the possibility of migrant movements towards Europe. This time we need to implement prompt humanitarian help in the region, in the countries of origin. There can be no repeat of 2015. We need orderly protection for those trying to head to Europe. The chaos in Kabul points to some of the broader questions about Germany's place in the world. Relations with the US have improved since Joe Biden replaced Donald Trump in the White House. Merkel paid a farewell visit to Washington in July and agreed a so-called Washington Declaration, underlining the two countries' support for liberal democracy, NATO and the transatlantic alliance. It's a great pleasure to welcome Chancellor Merkel back into the White House, where she's been in the Oval Office many times. She's been a great friend. Our nations, and we saw this again today, are not just allies and partners, but close friends, and I'm grateful for the friendly nature of our discussion. But the visit also highlighted the areas of tension. Berlin's close commercial relationship with Beijing frustrates a Washington that sees China increasingly as a rival. Like its predecessors, the Biden administration thinks Germany remains too reliant on the US security umbrella for its own defence, and Germany's completing the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline from Russia, which the US says serves Kremlin interests. My view on Nord Stream 2 has been known for some time. Good friends can disagree. America's disengagement from arenas like Afghanistan and the Middle East is putting a greater onus on European powers like Germany to take responsibility for their own affairs and their own near abroad. That calls for a different sort of EU, one closer to traditional French preferences than to German ones, more ambitious on defence and foreign policy, and, relatedly, more fiscally and politically integrated. Many wonder whether comfortable, cautious Germany is ready for such harsh new realities. So to kick off, let's dig into how the German electorate see the country's place in the world. And I couldn't wish for two better guides to precisely that question than Dr. Liana Fix and Julia Ganter, both of the Kerber Foundation, which is a foreign policy think tank based in Hamburg. And one of the things that the foundation is best known for, especially here in Berlin, is its in-depth research into public attitudes to foreign policy in Germany. Liana is Programme Director for International Affairs. Welcome, Liana. Hi, good to be here. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. And Julia is editor of the Berlin Pulse, which is an annual survey of German opinion on world affairs, which was launched in 2017. Welcome, Julia. Hi, Jeremy. Thank you for having us. Thank you for joining us too. So let's start off with the big picture. The Kerber Foundation has been monitoring how German voters see the world and their country's place in it for several years. You've done polling, I understand it, in the last months that paints the picture of that landscape going into the election campaign. Can you tell us what that landscape looks like? What do we know about how Germans see their country's place in the world? Germans are really reserved when it comes to international involvement. So we are posing these questions, this question if Germans want to be more or less involved in international uh, crisis. And we see since 2017, 
that they prefer restraint. There's a slight difference with the youngest respondents, but overall Germans prefer to not to deal too much with international crises. How are younger Germans different on that? The youngest respondents, or respondents between 18 and 34, they're a little bit less reserved when it comes to international involvement. We saw that 55% last year, compared to 44% as the average of all age groups, would like to increase international involvement of Germany. One of the things that particularly interests me about your polling is what it tells us about how Germans see the country's allies. Obviously, one of the country's closest allies, the US, has been through a big political shift over the last year or so. What does the polling tell us about how Germans see the transatlantic relationship and Germany's alliance with countries like France? So uh, we see in all those years that we feel that the questions that Germans are very skeptical regarding the United States. They do not really perceive the US as partner in any of the issues we've asked them about, for example, dealing with China or promoting free trade or human rights. But we also see that they had great hopes for President Biden. When we asked them about the development of the relations with the U.S. shortly after the U.S. election last year, 78% mentioned that they think that relations will normalize again. So our upcoming survey might show how the new administration changed the perception of the U.S. and the transatlantic relations. And what is interesting is that Germans continue to see France as the most important partner on foreign policy issues and not the United States. And I think, Julia F. White, this was also a constant now that France always tops the list of Germany's main foreign policy partners. I'm sometimes struck reading the polling at how there is obviously a kind of a sizable minority of Germans who still see Putin's Russia in a relatively positive light. Is, Is that a fair impression? Well, Russia is certainly perceived as a challenge by Germans, so it always ranks amongst the main foreign policy challenges. And we always ask the questions, what is more important for Germans, close relations with the United States or close relations with Russia? The response to this question always favors the United States, but we've seen differences in the past where, for instance, during the Trump administration, there was also a large chunk of Germans who said they want to have equal distance to both partners. And we also see some interesting differences in between Germany, between East and West Germans, where we can roughly say that East Germans are less critical or have a little bit different attitudes than West Germans towards Russia. Interesting. So the East-West divide still persists in some of these these attitudes. I'd like to ask quickly about the situation in um, Afghanistan. I think it would be remiss of me not to. We're recording this on the morning of Monday, the 16th of August. As we understand it, Kabul has essentially just fallen to the Taliban. And of course, the almost 20-year story of US military involvement in Afghanistan that's now coming to an end is also a story of German involvement. It's It's the biggest German military deployment in the history of the Federal Republic. The last German soldiers came back from Afghanistan at the end of June as part of that wider pullout. And obviously Germans are watching with great concern at the sort of chaos that seems to be breaking out there today. Obviously, you haven't got polling on the latest events, but what do we know from the research that you have done about how Germans saw and see the country's military involvement there? I think what's interesting, actually, is that this is the first foreign policy topic that has come up at all so far in the German election campaign. And this is a pattern that we've seen in the past that foreign policy issues only come up if there's a major crisis like we now really have in this the, the, the very dramatic situation in Kabul. 
the attitudes towards Afghanistan relates back to two questions, to the question of military involvement, but also to the question of migration policy, which Germans perceive as the most important challenge for German foreign policy. I think it's really interesting here that we perceive this development over the years since 2017 until 2020. Migration has been mentioned as the biggest challenge for German foreign policy. Last year, 37% of responses when we ask about the greatest foreign policy challenges referred to migration. And I think what is interesting here also is that there is a huge gap between what German policymakers focus on and what the election came so far focused on and what Germans actually perceive as a big challenge for their foreign policy. And we've seen what Laschet has said in response to the dramatic situation in Afghanistan now. One of his sentences was that 2015, the big migration wave, should not repeat itself. And that shows us to what extent the situation in Afghanistan is also framed in Germany against the backdrop of 2015 and the topic of migration. I was very struck by him reaching for that in his initial response, because mm -hmm. you, know, you might have expected a frontline politician like him to talk about the humanitarian situation or the fact that Germany had made this big military investment in, in Afghanistan's security. And to go straight to this rather defensive question of can we protect our borders, I think was quite striking. And it speaks to this bigger question of how much does Germany see itself as having responsibilities in the wider world beyond its own neighbourhood in terms of you know, the geopolitical stability of the international order because i think afghanistan's interesting here there was there was the famous quote by then defense minister peter struck in 2004 in which he said that the the security of germany is decided in the hindu kush and this was seen as a a different way of looking at germany's role in the world you know for a country that had only sent its first troops abroad into a military situation in 1999 for the first time since formation of the, of the Federal Republic. Sometimes you get the sense that the narrative is Germany has gradually come to recognize more and more responsibility. You know, American governments, both Donald Trump, but also Barack Obama and now Joe Biden, urged Germany to spend more on defense. What do we know about how German voters see that? And has there been any noticeable change in, in a kind of recognition of responsibilities or a military role globally? I think this is one of the most interesting questions, actually one of the reasons why we started the Berlin Pulse, because we had this debate in Berlin about Germany needs to take on more responsibility to become more engaged militarily. And we thought, well, we need to back this up with public opinion and what the German, the German public thinks about this. And we can perhaps see a development in the Berlin foreign policy elites and sort of the Berlin foreign policy bubble about Germany's need to take on a stronger role But we don't really see this reflected in German public opinion, despite all the all the efforts, um, or some would say perhaps not enough efforts by politicians to discuss this topic of German responsibility. Well, a related question to that is how Germany deals with Russia and China, because parallel to the accusation that Germany doesn't do enough on sort of its geopolitical responsibility, it doesn't spend enough on defense, is the accusation that its foreign policy is too often guided by its export industries. And the most notable example of that, of course, is China, which has been a big focus for German diplomacy, but has also been a driver of German prosperity over the last decade or so. How do Germans see the relationship with China? And do you think, do you get the sense that they are actually divided on that question of whether to see China more as a commercial partner or a geopolitical rival or challenge? This is also a really interesting question if we compare the opinion of foreign policymakers here in Berlin, what we hear from the government, the critique of German 
China policy and the public opinion, because in our latest May poll, we asked Germans if they would support more EU sanctions on China for human rights violations, even if they harm Germany's economic interests. And what we saw is that 76% of Germans are in favor of those sanctions. What we also see regarding China is that Germans are rather neutral when it comes to, to China. While we have this huge discussion about China in German foreign policy, we see that China's influence in the world is perceived by always around 40% of Germans as neutral, also around 40% of Germans as negative, but uh, Germans are not that vocal in their uh, opinion in regards to China compared to uh, the German foreign policy. I know you sometimes cooperate with research organizations in other countries. Do you get a sense that the German electorate is more ambivalent about China than, for example, voters in France or the UK or the US or wherever? What we saw in last year's poll, we did a cooperation with the British Embassy in Berlin and uh, also included responses from the British public. We posed this question about how would you position yourself if there is a new Cold War between the US and China? Around 80% of Germans, they wanted to position themselves uh, neutrally and only around uh, 65% of the British public gave the same response. So I guess at least in comparison to the British public, we can see that Germans are more neutral. I'd like to ask about the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline, because this is, I think, an interesting subject in itself, but also a a way of seeing how Germans understand those trade-offs sometimes between commercial interests and values-based foreign policy. There's a big divide, obviously, in German politics. The CDU and the SPD both say they want to complete the, the pipeline. The Greens say they want to stop construction. Where did the German public stand? Yeah, we asked exactly that question in our May survey. And what was interesting is that about 44% of Germans said that the pipeline should be completed and put into operation, although we still have the possibility of new US sanctions. And 38% that we should complete it and only go into operation when there's a compromise with the United States. So while still most Germans said, well, we should just go ahead with the pipeline, there were still some Germans who were concerned about the potential fallout for the relationship with the United States. And then we also had 11% who said stop the project. So basically, Germans support the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, but they do not want to have a significant political disagreement with the United States over it. I've talked about the difference between the main political parties. Let's let's just conclude by looking ahead to the election and the choice that voters will face there on September the 26th. Is there any sense of specifically what Germans want from their next government, their next coalition government, let's assume, on the foreign policy front? And relatedly, how do they see the three prospective successors to Angela Merkel on foreign policy, Armin Laschet, Olaf Scholz and Annalena Baerbock? Who do they trust most to represent Germany in the world? Maybe I can start with the second question, because we asked the German public which of the three candidates they regard as the most competent as regards foreign policy. And we found out that almost one third of Germans perceives Olaf Scholz as the most competent. Annalena Baerbock scored last in this question with around 13 percent. And another interesting point was that also 23% of Germans did not trust in the foreign policy competence of any of the three candidates. I think this is kind of a puzzle because we also asked another question if Germans fear the loss of international influence when when, uh, Chancellor Merkel leaves office. And here, 58% of Germans answered that they don't fear a loss. 
So on one end, they, they do not trust so much in uh, the three candidates, but on the other hand, they are also not afraid of the time uh, post-Merkel. I mean, I would assume from that then that we don't reckon that foreign policy will be a major driver of voting behavior. Is that fair to say? I think it really depends on, as we always say, the vote is decided in the very last weeks. So if we have any other major foreign policy crisis like Afghanistan right now, and remember the Iraq war, which was one of the main reasons why Gerhard Schröder was so successful in the election campaign. So I think it really depends on on the day-to-day business. If we have no major crises, it will probably not play a major role. And only if we have another big issue like Afghanistan coming up, then we will see it again in the debates. Well, time will tell and we'll be paying attention to that very closely here on Germany Elects. I'd like to thank you both very much indeed for this fantastic tour through the opinion landscape on foreign policy ahead of the election. Um, Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Liana Fix. Thank you so much, Jeremy. And thank you, Julia Ganter. Thanks, Jeremy. As a reminder, you can find our Germany poll tracker and all our German election coverage at newstatesman.com slash Germany. We're offering a special discount on new subscriptions to the New Statesman for listeners to these podcasts. You can get 12 weeks for just £12, that's about €14, by visiting newstatesman.com slash subscribe12. After the break... There's no vision thing, as we would say, in sort of American English, right? On pandemics, scrambling to find a solution. On migration, scrambling to find a solution, at least some sort of short-termist thing. We've heard what the voters think, but what do the policy experts say? Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Next up, we discuss the wider policy picture. 
I should add that this interview was recorded on Friday the 13th of August, before the Taliban took Kabul. Well, to better understand the foreign policy picture, both inside and outside Germany, I'm really pleased to be joined by Catherine Kluver-Ashbrook, who is the new director and CEO of the DGAP, the German Council on Foreign Relations here in Berlin. Uh, Previously, Catherine was the director of the Future of Diplomacy Project at the Harvard Kennedy School. And so she's really well placed to talk to us about the foreign policy dimension of this election. Welcome to Germany, Alex. Catherine, and welcome back to Germany. Well, thank you, Jeremy. It's been a long 13 years in the United States, and every listener will immediately associate my Idaho accent with a place across the Atlantic. But the truth, of course, is I'm, I'm half German and half American. So this election is something I'm very intently focused on. We want to start by just sort of taking a a view on where things are now. And I think many people, particularly outside of Germany, will think of the last 16 years of foreign policy under Merkel in many ways as a succession of crises that have had to be fought as fires, whether it's the financial and economic crisis, the Eurozone crisis, the migration crisis, the rise of the sort of the liberal backlash, if you want to call that internationally, and then, of course, COVID-19. It's very easy to get the impression of a very, quite a reactive, quite a passive German foreign policy in which some of these big trends, the rise of China as a, as a rival to the West, the rise of Russia as a, as a threat, the growing geopolitical Atlantic have been rather overlooked in some of the kind of German debates. Can you just give us your view of kind of how fair a judgment of the, of the Merkel foreign policy legacy do you think that is? Well, I think a couple of things are true about the German sort of institutional construct around foreign policy that makes it comparable to other Western democracies. And then there are things about the German situation that make it quite different and quite German at the end of the day, and that make it very closely associated with Angela Merkel as a person. You know, we've observed in Germany, as we have in other Western democracies, a move in foreign policy away from foreign ministry or the State Department toward the executive. And Angela Merkel made that very clear in 2005 when she took office, that that's what she intended to do. If you think about, you know, the the previous tandem, Schroeder-Fisher, there was a lot more working hand in hand to try to tackle, you know, again, a number of very serious crises, not least, of course, in the Balkans and around the Iraq war. She made it clear that she wanted the foreign policy line to come from her office. And then that hampered, I think, German foreign policy policy similar or to the way that you really describe, which is to say that because then the immediate sort of compounding of a series of crises that crashed down on the country and on Europe and on her leadership position, she basically evolved as a very pragmatic crisis manager, but not as somebody with a strategic vision for the country. And so after 16 years, you have a situation where she has managed these crises almost single-handedly with the backing of certain parts of her party, but you know, certainly as the figurehead of these crises, and in some cases with a fair amount of backlash from international partners, but as somebody who's always wanted to go into the world, play a strong diplomatic role. At the beginning of her administration, people, or particularly journalists, would accuse her of only stopping off in Germany to, <laughs> to do some domestic policy work. She has been someone who's been increasingly engaged in the world in terms of German public and foreign policy. And yet there has been very little vision for the country. The vision pieces came from other parts of German foreign policy infrastructure in 2014, this Munich consensus that Germany needed to take on more responsibility in the world. But de facto, she's been, above all, a pragmatist, a good crisis manager, and someone who's largely insulated 
the German public from the challenges that exist currently and the challenges that lie ahead. So I think Germany is, in fact, in line for a very rude awakening. How much do you think the last six or seven years of her chancellorship has delivered on that Munich consensus? Obviously, that was this moment at the Munich Security Conference back in 2014, at which there were several speeches, including by Frank-Walter Steinmeier, now the president, then the foreign minister, talking about Germany's need to step up and do more and take more responsibility. And yet, six or seven years on, the accusation still gets levelled at Berlin that it is still too much in the sort of rather naive 1990s mindset when it comes to how the world works. What do you think about that? Well, I think sadly, you're largely true. All the things that you would have needed, even institutionally, to tackle some of the bigger transnational problems that the world is now confronting. Um, Migration, you know, the end of that big spike 2015, you know, where would Germany need, need it to be or where should Germany be in managing migration as a global phenomenon? Very little change, no vision, no institutional shifts to really tackle that within, you know, a multilateral architecture. Of course, that's always been the primacy of German foreign policy of deeply embedded, you know, seeing globalization as a good thing, deeply embedded in the multilateral architecture, strongly anchored to the United States. Those are principles that can't be abrogated in the German foreign policy context. And yet there's no vision thing, as we would say in sort of American English, right? On pandemics, scrambling to find a solution. On migration, scrambling to find a solution, at least some sort of short-termist thing. So Germany has stayed largely in this reactive position. And in those areas where you could have imagined Germany to take a very strong principled stance linked to its history, linked to a desire to not have, you know, its own hubris overtake itself. If you think of Libya, if you think of Syria, you know, the usage of sarin gas, you'd think those would be the kind of triggers, as was true, you know, in the Balkan Wars, that would have prompted Germany to take, you know, a more internationalist set of steps and step up in line with France, the UK and the United States. But it did not. It decided again to take a large step away or play a pretty reticent card overall. And I think, again, this links to the fact that she has not seen her calling, her personal calling and her leadership philosophy as somebody who sets a foreign policy vision and repositions the country's capacities, makes German foreign policy fit for purpose internally and repositions Germany in the world. So you've just come over from the US and obviously you talk to people all around Europe as well. What's your sense of how Germany's allies view this election and what they're hoping for from this election? Well, the Americans, first and foremost, are worried that finding a functional government coalition, because, of course, we'll recall how long the last finding process took or the last negotiations toward toward, uh, securing a stable government took, they're very worried that at the moment when you have this cascade of crises, the 30,000-foot dimension with the competition between the systemic rivalry as impersonated countrywise, of course, by China-Russia, on the one hand, the autocrats and the, the democracies on the other side, with Biden's narrative of going into the world and strengthening the cohesion and innovative capacity of democracies, Germany won't be able to be a functional player because it will be potentially lame duck until mid-January, which is when the French head into an election campaign, also usually characterized 
by focus on domestic issues. So I think the Biden team is very worried that at the heart of Europe, the two most powerful countries that it will need to continue this narrative and to really push on a number of the transatlantic initiatives now underway, the EU Tech and Trade Council, all the elements that were listed in the Washington Declaration that Merkel and Biden uh, signed at her last visit at the White House, a lot of these initiatives will be effectively put on hold. And that leaves the United States, again, carrying the majority of the burden when it comes to tackling these integrated challenges of this, on the one hand, these sort of big competitive questions in international relations, and all the key issues right now on the transnational agenda that we're dealing with. How do we get out of this pandemic as the globe, as the world? How do we move forward with a number of these really critical trade questions that will impact the functionality of our economic systems? and the way that we think about prosperity in the future. All of those things I think the Americans are worried about having a big void at the heart of Europe when actually you need very quick, very consistent, uh, and very, frankly, visionary reform efforts at this moment in time. I've seen it suggested that the, that the, the visionary reform efforts, particularly during this German election campaign, and maybe more long term, might now more come from Paris, where, of course, Emmanuel Macron has been propagating a reform agenda since he became president in 2017, but also Italy under the leadership of Mario Draghi, the the new prime minister and former European Central Bank president. Obviously, agreements on particularly things like the future of the Eurozone need German support. And we saw that with this next generation EU fund, 750 billion euros to support the economies through the pandemic related slowdown. Do you think there's any realistic chance of Germany stepping up in a way that it hasn't under Merkel to those sorts of conversations, particularly once there's a new German chancellor and French president in place? I think that's, you know, the $64,000 question, as we would say in American English. It depends on the personnel. And that, of course, is a weakness of the German system in a way that, you know, so much of what actual power lies in a German government is negotiated and is part of coalition agreements. If you end up with a mix where somehow the Social Democratic Party does end up as part of an administration, then you know, you've had Olaf Scholz, his finance minister, has made some very clear advances to say, we need to really move up, step forward. It's been a really interesting discussion and debate here to see these constitutional changes be debated because you know, not only are the Germans sentimentally attached to what we call casually the black zero, which is to say a balanced budget sheet and containing inflation and effectively staying with fealty, you know, to some version of the Maastricht criteria, even if they have been unbelievably stretched. There seems to be a new flexibility and new thought being given to how a German constitution and the constitutional, there's been an internal debate with the constitutional court on how to you know, potentially advance here in the way that it could really have impactful change for you know, the re-anchoring and rethinking of the capacities of the Eurozone with respect to innovation, the recovery fund, you know, how does one extend that? Although you know, the traditional impulse is to pull back. So there, I think it's going to depend very strongly on the personnel that you find in this government and how much they realize, again, that without German commitment, and I mean financial and political commitment, and again, this goes back to the point where you really have to begin to re-educate the German public on the kind of sacrifices it's going to take to tackle these integrated issues that will come crashing down on the German public to really lean into these the, into these challenges. I think there's capacity. 
I think if this government is formed such that you have an interagency process, a good strategic visionary process, some version of a German NSC, you could really get there and you could really use Germany's, even though you know we consider it a Mittelmacht uh, in the heart of Europe and a smaller power, but Germany has some very unique qualities in the sense that it does have leadership function for its peers within Europe. And if Germany used that smartly, I think you could see a lot of momentum, but it will depend at the end on the personnel and the constellations of this coalition that finally ends up ruling the country. The potential is absolutely there, and I think that's that's true also on the diplomatic front. Germany has relationships with other powers that that others in the Western alliance don't necessarily have, or it can have conversations that other, others can't. I'm always struck by the fact that Merkel, I believe, made more trips to China than to the US as chancellor. I mean, obviously, that speaks of the fact that she's cultivated a very close economic relationship and has attracted criticism for not opening more geopolitical discussions, discussions about things like human rights. But if that relationship could be put at the service of those goals, you can imagine Germany playing a very different role, right? Absolutely. Look, Jeremy, my word for this in German is Scharniermacht, hinge power. I do think that, which is, you know, sort of an awkward, <laughs> awkward formulation, perhaps. But I do think that Germany has a very unique role to play. These close ties with the United States reaffirmed by this Merkel visit. I do think that the elements in the Washington Declaration will make it into some sort of concerted effort by the next government, which either way will continue to be quite transatlanticist. But then also realizing fully, inter internalizing, um, as you pointed out, the strengths that Germany has toward China. Everyone points out how dependent the German economy is on China. But, you know, that that relationship flows two ways, at least for now. That window will change very quickly. And we see this already in some of the industry reports we're getting as part of the recovery, which is to say that in key industries, China is overtaking Germany in some of its core industrial foundations. So the window is short to where Germany can use its good diplomatic ties to China and the fact that there is a codependency economically, certainly in key sectors, uh, to really put pressure on the Chinese. And the same thing is true of Russia, where Merkel, you know, yes, leaned into the economic opportunities. She was a big fan of Nord Stream 1. We all know how she feels about Nord Stream 2. And yet, you know, she has managed more so than any other European leader to continue to hold the Russian president's feet to the fire. And that would have to be realized and made actionable in this new coalition. And again, this is where, you know, one could be optimistic looking at a certain composition of personnel, or one could fret depending on who takes over the reins in the sort of decision making areas in German foreign policy. That all just goes to show how important it is, how Germany's led for the next the next four years, which brings us on to, on to the makeup of the next government. And you've, you've hinted already at the fact that there are obvious areas where we can broadly expect continuity, for example, a certain disposition towards the transatlantic relationship. And yet you look at particularly the, the, the three leading parties, or, or perhaps the four, if you take the, the FDP, so the CDU, CSU, the Greens, the, the SPD and, and the F, FDP, all mainstream parties that sign up to a kind of a set of what you might call consensus principles about Germany's place in the world that aren't too far from what Angela Merkel's propounded. But obviously, there are important differences between them. How much of a gap do you see between the different possible outcomes and also the possible coalitions that, that conceivably could come out of this election? Well, it's really interesting because far away, again, from the public eye, as is often the case in European elections, there's been quite some movement on the foreign policy dossiers, even since the party political programs came out. 
if you talked to Armin Laschet about his foreign policy line at the start of this campaign season, it would have seemed, again, very pragmatic, very low-key, very unwilling to really also institutionally, I mentioned, you know, this idea of a German National Security Council. That's been run around the party a couple of times. And he said different things at different occasions, but very sort of non-committal, but generally interested in kind of maintaining the Merkel line. Well, a couple of days ago, there were, was a very interesting set of essays published by both the, you know, the transatlantic coordinator of the CDU by Mr. Laschet and an essay by the Minister of Defense, where they take a much harder, much stronger line on China than you could read in the party political program. So far away from the public eye, the fact that, you know, the winds are shifting given specific realities we might see a little more proximity to the Greens who both in their party political program and in their public pronouncements have taken a very strong and principled line, which is a little different on, on foreign policy and shows the maturation of the party over time, you know, that's very strongly values-based, that's very linked to what, you know, they call human rights-driven foreign policy, right? So they've, in the party political programs, took a very strong line on China and took a very strong line on Russia. And so that's an interesting movement. And yet I do think that in the actual negotiations for any coalition agreement, let's assume it's a quote-unquote black and green, so a conservative and green party government that needs to work this out, I think the devil will truly be in the details. On some areas, they'll be closer together if I think about armed drones than, for instance, this grand coalition was over the past couple of years where the Social Democrats took a big step away from things, you know, in questions around really defense materiel. But I do think that in the nuance, the negotiating will be quite tough. And again, this will be surprising to the German public because what has happened in this election campaign is that, again, foreign policy has taken a backseat. But there has been movement in the background. But again, that is because the differences that were put on the table were quite stark. And so in some ways, you could kind of speculate that some early negotiation or some early hmm, kind of look, more realistic look at the world outside is actually lending itself to having the large parties, including the CDU, mildly rethink their views and actually fundamentally possibly moving closer to the Greens, even though key differences will still exist and need to be battled out over the months of these coalition agreements. I'm going to have to ask you just before we finish about the foreign policy of Armin Laschet in particular. He is still just about, uh, although the polling has been deteriorating for the CDU-CSU, the front runner to be the next chancellor. And his some of his previous comments have alarmed German allies, whether it's criticising the US for supporting rebels in Syria, whether it's embracing a, a big role for the Chinese giant Huawei and Germany's 5G, whether it's supporting Nord Stream 2. I'm aware from previous conversations with colleagues in the US that there is some concern about his foreign policy instincts, that they might be, you know, that for, for all that Merkel has been criticised for not doing enough to stand up to China and so forth, that he would be drastically worse. What's what's your view on that? And how much do you think his actual, his foreign policy as Chancellor, and as you've said, foreign policy is in many ways made in the Chancellery now more than it was before. How much do you think that will shape a future coalition's stance on Germany and the world? Well, I think, I mean, Laschet, to a large degree, doesn't really yet fully know what he wants to do or achieve in foreign policy. And this leads to this sort of shifting winds kind of situation. You mentioned the Huawei issue. Of course, the chancellor was also, uh, quote unquote, pro-Huawei for a long time. 
and because of internal pressure within the party has begun to shift her tune. I think you'll see that happening with Armin Laschet as well. I pointed to these essays where he takes a stronger line on China, where he falls in line with a big industrial organization, the BDE in Germany, much more than he ever has before. And I, I do think that that's concerning, because if you don't have somebody with a strong political instinct, you know, a values-driven sort of general view of the world, a strong understanding of, quote unquote, right and wrong, then you have someone who seems at least inconsistent. And I think in this day and age, there is nothing more dangerous, specifically for democracies when they're operating with one another, than, you know, to not know where the other stands, which is to say that, you know, a lack of predictability is difficult. And Merkel, you know, out of her own biography, although, you know, Laschet would say about himself, because of how he grew up, because of where he grew up, he's a, you know, bone marrow, deep European, everything that he does and will do will be driven through the eyes of the European Union. Which just to clarify for listeners, that's, that's, that's because he grew up in and around Aachen, which is right on the border with Belgium and very looks to France in many ways. So he's he would see himself as a, as a classic Rhinelander and believer in the Franco-German engine, right? Very much so. But even there, Jeremy, you know, he's not leaned into these slightly more revolutionary ideas of an Emmanuel Macron, which also largely left Angela Merkel cold, right? She She didn't really... You know where she had the strong friendship with the predecessor of our of the current president, such that you know they were always dubbed as Mercosi. She did not develop this relationship with Macron. And we conversely don't see an Amin Laschet putting great stride plans forward for how the European Union needs to be strengthened from the inside. It's more of a deflection point that every decision that Germany has to and wants to take needs to be embedded in the EU context. I find that frankly weak. Because again, you know, the problems that Germany will have to tackle openly now out of this confluence of these transnational issues and the systemic competition that's just heating up effectively day by day between the United States and China, those are decisions that the German public are not ready for, is not ready for. And that's a dangerous thing. So that is, I think, by far the greatest default or problem with these 16 years of this otherwise pragmatic crisis management cloaked as foreign policy that Angela Merkel has run. The German public is not ready for what is coming at it. And I worry that Amin Laschet, who has tried to continue to stay sort of middle of the road, seem as a continuation of Merkel, not, you know, take too much of a strongly values reinforced position on a number of issues will have difficulty there. And so what I could see is that whoever takes over the foreign ministry, if we have, if he is the chancellor, could have a really interesting and strong opportunity to kind of pull back some of the agenda setting back into the foreign ministry and drive that political process in a way that we, you know, haven't seen over the last 16 years. And in part, Laschet will need that because he will need that kind of guidance to be more astute and to hopefully, but again, I worry about this, grow into a strategist. Because if Germany needs one thing at this moment in time, it is a foreign policy strategy that's interest-driven, that respects its allied relationships, but that really has a better understanding of the nuanced power role and power dynamic that Germany can play in this altered world. Right. And just and isn't just, just reacting to crises as they as they land on, on the German doormat. One final question. 
the consensus of our guests on our last episode was that this isn't going to be an election that really grapples with some of the biggest questions facing Germany. Do you think that's true of foreign policy as well? Oh, God, yes. <laughs> you know, we have seen, and it's been interesting to be back in Germany for this electoral campaign. I think coming from the other side of the Atlantic, you know, I was very excited to be home for this election to really see in a granular way how these issues would play out, to be able to go and vote physically, which I haven't been, been able to do for 13 years. And it's been largely a roundhouse disappointment because the issues that this election campaign has focused on have been personality driven. They've had a great taste of misogyny with respect to the only female in the running. They have not at all tackled any of the you know, larger integrated issue. The fact that you had these cataclysmic floods in the western part of Germany forced every party to come out and reinforce whatever they were going to do on climate change. That's important. But really, you know, Germany is at, a, at such a pivot point that this should have really been a very issues driven campaign. And wherever I look, I'm not seeing that come out as strongly as it would need to. And again, as it would need to prepare the German public for, because in order to have this critical capacity at the heart of Europe, Germany is going to have to make some changes. It's going to have to make some sacrifices. And those sacrifices will cost the German public. And I frankly think these are lost opportunities to prepare a German public like the Schroeder-Fischer government did before, or like even, you know, the former defense minister Volker Rühe did, to the realities of, of what awaits the country outside. And so, again, I think there are, you know, a series of missed opportunities. I don't expect foreign policy unless, you know, again, Afghanistan is, of course, on everybody's mind. Other large foreign policy issues crash into these last weeks of campaigning. I still don't expect foreign policy to be a major issue in these last few weeks of campaigning season. Well, we at Germany Elects are going to be out on the campaign trail in the next weeks. And I can assure you, we'll keep our ears to the ground for any whispers of engagement with those big questions. <laughs> but I think I share some of your pessimism. Catherine Kluver-Ashbrook from the German Council of Foreign Relations, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. My pleasure, Jeremy. Anytime. That's it for this second episode of Germany Elects from the New Statesman. I'll be back in two weeks for our third episode, in which I'll be looking at how the race is developing and how it's shaped by Angela Merkel's long legacy as Chancellor. There'll be another regular episode of World Review covering the latest dramatic events in Afghanistan, up, as usual, on Friday. You've been listening to Germany Elects, a special World Review pop-up podcast from The New Statesman. I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin, you can read all of our coverage at newstatesman.com slash Germany and follow me on Twitter at Jeremy Cliff. This podcast was produced by Adrian Bradley. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out of pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.